Right, it's great to be with you. I'm really looking forward to next Sunday. I was thinking about it yesterday. Um, and just, I really am looking forward to just having that time together to connect and build relationships and share with one another and get to know one another. So if you aren't signed in, can I just add my encouragement, uh, arm behind your back kind of maneuver and say, please book in and be a part of it. I think these are days where you've got to choose to be in. I don't, know, I don't know about you, but it just feels like everything in life right now still takes quite a lot of willpower, really, doesn't it? Um, and so I, wanted to, I was just stood at the back earlier as we were worshipping, and um, when Sam was singing uh, just prophetically over us, and I, I, just, I just felt like God was saying in my heart to say well done to everyone for being here this morning. Um, I hope that's not in a patronizing way, and I don't mean it in a patronizing way, but just well done for making that decision to say, I'm going to worship God and be with the people of God. And so take that how you want. It's meant to be an encouragement. If you get annoyed, send an email to Nigel. Um, So great to be with you. My name's Colin. I'm one of the leaders here at Gateway. I just want to extend my welcome to you. If this is your first Sunday with us, it's great to have you here. Um, Please do connect with us at the end. You can either um, run over to the connect point before you head out and chat to somebody there or come and speak to myself or Nigel. Um, We'd love to just say hi and get to know you a bit. We are carrying on in our series, Encounters with Jesus. And through this series, we're we're simply looking at uh, instances, stories, uh, vignettes, where Jesus encounters somebody, and their life is transformed by who he is. That's it. That's the goal, is to recognize that Jesus has the power to transform lives, of everyone and anyone who he comes into contact with. And I I just feel as we go through this series, it's just a good reminder to us that yes, he can do that, but that he also wants to do it with you and I. Wherever you are on your journey of faith, whether you have been walking with Jesus for years and years, we were just singing it a moment ago, he's not finished with you yet. And he still wants to bring transformation. He's He's taking you from one degree of glory to another, the Bible says. He's turning. God is making you to look more and more like Jesus in your life. Or maybe you're here and you, you really don't know Jesus and you're just exploring things of faith and, and who is Jesus. I want to say to you that Jesus has the power to transform your life, not just to make you the better version of you. That's the world's goal. But to give you life that is true life and life that is eternal life and a future and a hope that goes even beyond the grave itself. And that's the promise of Jesus. And I, I just think taking time to, to stop and look at when Jesus encounters people face to face. When there's contact between people and Jesus, emotionally, spiritually, physically, Jesus transformed lives. And I just think that's a great thing to remind ourselves of. And so that's what we're doing. Um, this morning, if you would like to turn to... Luke chapter 7, we're going to be looking at the story of two people. In your Bible, it will say um, Jesus is anointed by a sinful woman, most likely. But it's actually a story of Jesus encountering two people and a contrast of two encounters with Jesus. One of whom ends up worshipping Jesus and delighting in him and the other who, who, quite frankly, misses the mark. 
And all the way through, we'll see this in a moment, all the way through, there's this kind of turning upside down of the way the world sees things. There's a contrast between these two people. And we'll see that basically, I put this ladder here, not because the lights need fixing, which they always do, but because this represents, this is how the world works. So when you're at school, Phoebe, come here quickly. Quick, come on. You've got to run. You're taking time. You didn't know I was doing this. Bad parenting moment. Right. Okay, so this is Phoebe representing every school child in the country. And at school, see, kids do this in a way that we do it, but kids make it obvious. Okay, at school, not everybody, but most kids want to be the popular kid right at the top. Go and stand at the top, quick. Come on, you've got to get into the spirit of this, Phoebe, so it just it falls flat. Most kids want to do this. You can turn around and wave for everybody if you want, but be careful. Don't fall off. Or else I'm in trouble. And... And you know what this means, don't you? This is the popular kids at school, or as in Ollie's language, in Royal Wharton Bassett. I don't know if this is true of everywhere else. These kids are fives. Mate, these are fives up there. These aren't just threes or twos. These are fives. And these are the kids that are influential, and, and everybody wants to be mates with them. And one of the ways that kids do this is sometimes they're kind and nice, but I think that's less common. Most of the time, what they're doing is stamping on the heads, Phoebe's quick, nicely, like that, yeah, <laughs> of the kids underneath them. They're stamping on the heads of the kids underneath them to say, stay down so I can stay up. Does that ring any bells of school experience? And then what happens is the kids that are maybe on a ladder three or four, they're nearly a five. They're grabbing at the ankles of the kids who are fives, and they're going, oh, you're a load of, uh, 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 and they're pulling on their ankles, and they're tearing them down. And schools are like this microcosm illustration of what we're like as people. And if you've ever seen Diary of a Wimpy Kid movies, has anybody ever seen them? Oh, okay, like interaction right now. Come on, get, get in the spirit of the thing. Hands up if you've seen Diary of a Wimpy Kid movies. Okay, some of you will know exactly what this is about. And in the Diary of a Wimpy Kid movie, you see um, both Rowley and Greg Heffley um, and you'll see their popularity stakes go up and down the school ladder. And Greg Heffley wants to do everything he can to be a five right at the top. Okay, Phoebes, that's enough. Get down. It's dangerous. <laughs> it's a good job Emma Pickering's not here this morning, I tell you. That would not be going down well. Um, I'd be in trouble. Thank you, Phoebes. Great illustration. Um, and so you go into any school... And this ladder of popularity, this ladder of life, is what's going on there all the time. And then you go into the world, and this is taking place all the time. And oftentimes it might be more subtle, although not so much. But then you go into the church, and the scary thing is, I think this thing is taking place all the time. With a religious edge to it with a spiritualized version of the popularity ladder, with a spiritualized version of holier than thou, with a spiritualized version of, I, I'm not, I might not tear somebody down, but in my heart, I might look at somebody, say, I'm glad I'm not a three. Imagine being a three right now. I'm not quite a five, but I'm a four, and maybe if I work a bit harder, then I could be a five. And I think that this actually represents humanity. This represents something of the heart of people that we do everything we can to, to make ourselves right, to make ourselves feel better. The, there's an instinct, a drive within us that says, 
Something's not right, and we've got to better ourselves. We've got to become more liked, more popular. We've got to find meaning, and meaning comes by ascending this ladder. And I think for many of us, we often approach our walk with Jesus in that kind of way. We had the good news of Jesus, and we were stunned by it, and we were amazed by it, and we received it, and we've fallen in love with Jesus. But maybe for some of us this morning, we've got to stop thinking like this. Some of us who are followers of Jesus. We've got to reset what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Back in the 50s, there's a, if I can find it, there's a, um, a story, I don't know if it's true, um, I'm assuming it is, but if not, the point is still true. Um, that there was a kind of uh, symposium of thinkers and academics and theologians um, that C.S. Lewis attended, and they were asking the question of what makes Christianity unique among all the world religions? What is actually the unique claim of Christianity? What separates Jesus' life and message from every other religion and world view. And as you can imagine, this was the uh, subject of much heated debate of philosophical and uh, academic uh, thinking. And they were exploring this. People from across the world have come together to explore this question. And one expert comes up and he says this. He says, well, the incarnation, that God would take on flesh, human flesh, and become like us. And then others said, but there, there are other religions that claim that gods appear as humans. And then someone says, okay, what about the resurrection? The fact that, that Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, was crucified upon a cross. He died. He was shown to be dead because he had a spear rammed in his side that ran with blood and water. He was buried in a tomb. And then after three days, he rose to life resurrection life. And again, uh, other people said, well, there are, in fact, other religions where people share stories of coming back from the dead. And so here at this table, all of these experts and thinkers were sat around having a heated debate when this man, one man, the great C.S. Lewis, author of the Narnia stories, um, one-time atheist, one-time opponent and adversary of the Christian faith and uh, strong in that also, but then encounters Jesus and has his life himself totally transformed. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen, um, what's it called, the, the movie in the book, Shadowlands? It's an amazing story um, of C.S. Lewis. And in, encounters Jesus, and in fact, through suffering. And his whole life is transformed by Jesus. And, Jesus, and apparently the story goes that C.S. Lewis walks into the room and, and is asked, and uh, he says to them, what's all this rumpus about? To which they re reply, uh, we're, we're exploring uh, what's the unique thing about the Christian faith. And C.S. Lewis says, well, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. And C.S. Lewis says that grace is the thing that makes Christianity unique. And so as we've gone through this preaching series, we, we're kind of getting up close and personal to the real Jesus 
and real people. People just like you and me. It's not, it's not people like you and me and then there's them out there. It's people like you and me who are also like people far from God who don't know Jesus. Real people. And so as we read Luke 7 in a moment, this is a story, a vivid story of grace. The grace of God on an individual's life. And it's amazing grace. A grace that comes from God and has no strings attached. A grace that transforms people from the inside out. A grace that is freely given and freely received. A grace that has nothing to do with this way of living at all. And what's remarkable about grace is that it not only sets Jesus apart from the rest of the religions in the world and worldviews, but it's a grace that is available for you and me this morning again. It's a grace that flows. We sang it a moment ago, didn't we? Grace that flows like a river. An unending, an unceasing river, and it's flowing to you and I This morning. So, Jesus, as we come to your word, we thank you for your word that it is powerful and sharp like a double edged sword and it cuts to the heart. It separates bone from marrow and it is able to bring transformation to the life of each one of us here. And so, I pray that as we listen, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be incredibly open and soft to you to speak to us today. Lord, that we would have hearts that receive your word for us personally. Lord, that we wouldn't have hearts of judgment that that are thinking, well, somebody else needs to hear this. We'd say, Lord, speak to me. Soften my heart. Bring your grace into my heart today that I may know you and rejoice in your grace and worship you, God and Savior, Lord and King. And so we bless your name and we just welcome you, Holy Spirit, here. We thank you. We've just been provoked that, Lord, you want to do more. There's more to go. There's more yet to come. And we say, Lord, even right now, would you come by your spirit and bring hope and healing and freedom and deliverance and sight to each one in this room today. For your glory, we pray this. For the glory of your name, we pray it for the joy of our lives. In your precious name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So Luke chapter 7. By the way, just hearing the kids there. um, Just in case some of you are a little bit irked by kids making noise, that's children. Um, And what a privilege it is to have kids among us. And it is our job to welcome them and to love them and be hospitable to them and to celebrate that they are with us, among us, as God's people. Okay, this isn't about your worship time. I don't know why I'm saying this. This I haven't even got time for this. It isn't about your worship time because it's about what's going on in your heart. 
And sure, sometimes things are disruptive, and I get that, and you're wanting to concentrate and have a bit of you and Jesus time, but you and Jesus time with God's family looks like family. Okay? And I've had some kids, and they can be pretty um, brilliant, is what they can be. Uh, Phew! And only very occasionally slightly hard work. So, um, God, thank you for our kids. And thank you that they're here to disrupt us. Right. I, I honestly, I want to say that because religion kills. Okay, religion kills the life of God among his people. We're going to see that right now. And, and sometimes we think it's about other things. We think it's about our behaviors. But it's actually what's going on in our heart, even when we're worshiping. Well, I, could, I, could, I could really worship God if the kids would flip in, shut up. And why don't we send them out to their groups from the beginning and... I'm only just saying what's in your heart and in your mind, so I perceive your thoughts, just like we'll see Jesus perceive Simon's thoughts. Right, let's move on. We're not going to get through this. It doesn't even matter. Um, Luke 7, 36. So we'll read through this, and then we'll come back and um, go through it bit by bit. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that Jesus was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, bought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, he, you know that, it wasn't just, I don't think it was just muttering under his breath, oh, the kids are a bit noisy this morning, love. I think it was in his heart. He, there's times throughout the Bible where people speak in their heart and Jesus perceives the heart. There's a verse that says that Jesus will perceive the thoughts of, excuse me, the thoughts of man's heart. And when this Pharisee saw this, he said to himself in his heart, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, he sees he's falling in the trap, for whom he cancelled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, 
I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. And then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Who doesn't just want to hear those words of Jesus to them right now in your heart? Your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Friends, go in peace today because your faith has saved you. Trusting in the sacrifice, the blood of Jesus. We, we, just, we just shared communion. Jesus still sits around a table with sinners and eats with them today. Friends, go in peace. Your faith has saved you. So let's start verse 36. We read this. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him and he went into the house and reclined at the table. Now, just a a quick note on the Pharisees. I'm sure many of you know, but The Pharisees really are the religious and social elite. They're the cultural elite of their day. They were revered and feared to some extent for their devotion to God's law. These guys were the fives of Israel back then. Okay, these these guys had it together. They they made sure everybody knew they were up here. They were incredibly strict, incredibly strict devoted to obeying God's law with any means they could in their life. They, they didn't get out of bed on the wrong side, I'm sure. They didn't walk into the wrong pub and, and have a drink. They didn't swear when they got cut up at the traffic lights. These guys, these guys were not watching the wrong program on TV. They weren't, they weren't afraid that that they were at the bottom of the social pecking order. That wasn't their fear in life. They were just strict, conservative, devout people. And in some sense, you could say, well, that's what it was to be an Israelite back in the day. Jesus had given them the law, and the the job of of the people of Israel was to follow the law But for people like the Pharisees, they, they did a good job of following the law. But what they forgot was that they were meant to care for those in society who were broken. They were meant to care for them and lift them up and help them and orphans and widows and those on the margins of society. But these guys became separatists in their thinking. It's not we're going to care for them. What you want us to care for ones... We're not going to care for ones. We're not even going to associate with them. We're, we're clean. We're, remember, it's all to do with cleanliness. Cleanliness was holiness. And you had those who were spiritually clean and those who were unclean. And we're not even going to associate with four because if we go near them and touch them, we'll become unclean like them. 
And we've worked so hard to, to polish every, every spiritual area of our life. And so anyway, one of these guys, at this point he's unnamed, one of these guys invites Jesus to his house. And there are not many occasions where uh, Pharisees are inviting Jesus into conversation in this way. So this guy's taking a risk. Maybe he's heard about Jesus. Maybe he's, maybe he's literally been a witness to some miracles. He's going, who is this guy? It's a great question. Who is Jesus? And so he, he takes the brave step of inviting Jesus to his, own, to his home for a meal at expense to himself. This wouldn't have just been a small event. This would have been a, a lavish party. There was a, there was a culture of, in the day, and it was kind of back from the Greeks as well, where you would, you would invite your home, and you would, back then you didn't have dining tables like this. You had dining tables like this. And everybody would be led around the dining table on their left-hand side, um, eating KFC, watching TV. Oh, no, Emma, sorry. Um, and and they'd, be, they'd be, have their head towards the table and their feet away from the table. Sorry, Em, this is not going to be a good afternoon for me. Um, and the feet would be away from the table because the, the feet are the kind of uh, the dirty part of the body that you keep away. They're the... Uh, the part that dishonors you, and so you keep them away from the table, and you would lean and you would eat and you would have conversation with friends and neighbors. And but there were times where people would gather like this around a meal in their home, and often a large home with somebody fairly wealthy, and they would talk about wisdom and family and community and faith, and they would have these big kind of dialogues and big questions, and they'd often invite rabbis or people who were renowned for wisdom to come in and be part of this conversation. But this was no closed-door event. This was no, um, this was no, you can't get into this event. I imagine that the story of C.S. Lewis was a ticket only. And you had to be in the right university. You had to have the right contact and the right um, way to get a ticket to that, to hear the conversation. But this was an open-door policy. Because actually, part of it wasn't just that, that you were throwing this event to find out something, but everyone, look how wealthy I am. Look how influential I am that I can even invite this, this rabbi, this influential leader who's going around teaching about the kingdom of God, and he'll come to my home. And I'm sure that this Pharisee was kind of, it was a bit of one-upmanship going on in his heart as well. So Jesus enters into this home. And we find out that this guy's name is Simon. And maybe he's just curious to find out more. And I want to say this morning, if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, I want to say this to you as clearly as I can. I genuinely believe that the Bible teaches us there is nothing more important you can do with your life than to investigate who is Jesus. And you can do exactly that. You can go on a journey of investigating who Jesus is and are his claims, is what... The Bible tells us of his life. Is it true? And there are many people in this room who would say, I've, I've done that. And I've discovered, yes, it's true. And I've met him and, I've, and his claims are true. And they're not just these abstract things. They've transformed and revolutionized my life because his words are also power and life. And there are many millions and billions of people around the world who are saying the same. And I want to invite you, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, to, to encounter him. That doesn't mean you have to become a follower this morning. It means you, you look at him in the eye and say, Jesus, who are you? And that's a great thing to do. That's a great way to 
to, to journey and to think about things of life and faith and eternity. And so, as I said, back in the ancient world, back in the day of Jesus, they would have had this way of reclining around a table, of having these times of debating and talking. They would kick their sandals off to not, so as not to carry the dust into the house. And then we're told in verse 37 that a woman of the city who was a uh, sinner enters the house. But we're not simply told that she enters the house. Look at Luke's words. I can tell you. He says, and behold, and behold. It's not just a woman of the city who was a sinner entered the room. And behold, everyone take note of this. What? She's just entered the room. It's an open door policy and people would have been walking in and out and they would come to listen. And not only that, Middle Eastern culture is very different from our own, isn't it? We have a very much a shut door policy these days. But this woman walks in to the midst of this gathering. And with her, she's bought an alabaster flask of anointing. And so why is it that Luke, why does he start this verse by saying, and behold? Why not just a woman? Well, he tells us because she's a woman of the city who was a sinner. And of course, we're all sinners. None of us, in terms of if we now think of this ladder as righteous before God, none of us are righteous before God. None of us are good enough. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of God's perfect standard that he demands. But Luke wants us to realize that this isn't just any woman who's walked in. It's a woman of the city who was a sinner by her profession. And sin was her livelihood. Most commentators on this verse will agree that this woman was a prostitute. And so if you now think of this as not only, not a spiritual pecking order for a moment, but a social pecking order. I know our world is doing the best to make uh, pornography and the sex trade seem just mainstream and standard. But if you think about it in the bigger context of the world, rather than the Western bubble of values, it really isn't seen as an honorable trade. And historically, it's not been seen as an honorable trait. And, and Luke's point is, this woman isn't, she's not even a one. By the very fact of her profession and trade, she is outside the covenant community of God's people. She has no means to get back into the covenant community of God's people. And such was this woman's reputation. That at first glance, is it that time already? <laughs> oh, get him something to do. We're going to be a long time. <laughs> um, okay. And such was her reputation. Simon knew at first glance who this woman was. And he knew the life of impurity 
and sin that she had lived. And unlike Simon, who would have paraded through the temples to go and make sacrifices to God, she would walk the streets sacrificing her body at night. And unlike Simon, who committed his life to obeying the law of God, she lived a reckless life, abandoning God's word and living for herself. Now, just I want to not just cast judgment on her. That's the whole point of this story that Luke's telling us. We don't even know her background. We don't know her upbringing. We don't know... We don't know what she faced in life. We don't know the trauma she went through. We don't know what drove her to that place. But Simon is not interested in any of that. He's a five. She's a zero or a minus one. Spiritually, she's a zero. Socially, she's a zero. She's just off the chart. Now, Simon is totally and utterly aware of her sin. And Simon, in his stupidity, he thinks there's two types of people in this room. He thinks there's the righteous, Simon, I've made it, I'm up here, and the unrighteous, the sinner, the deserving and the undeserving. And that's how Simon's viewed his whole life. Christian, I want to say to you, if that's how you view your life and your walk with Jesus, And that you have to do things that make you righteous before God. And that I am better than now. I'm holier than now. I'm better than my family member. I'm better than my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus. If only they'd be a bit more like me and get their act together and sort themselves out and come to church. And and then they'd start to go up the ladder like I've managed to get up the ladder. You've missed the point. We are all sinners who have fallen short. None of us before God are even a one. Don't kid yourself. You see, it's not there's a sinner and a righteous person. This is a story of two sinners. Both in desperate need of God's salvation. Both in desperate need of the grace of God to break into their lives. That undeserving, unmerited, unfavored, unearned grace of God that would rescue them. It's not one's a bit deserving and one is not deserving at all. They're both undeserving of the grace of God. Friends, we are undeserving of the grace of God in our lives. That's why it's called grace. It's not why it's called Jesus is just nice to you. It's called grace. And so, I don't know what's going to happen. We'll finish with a crash landing. Let me just finish. Let me just read this bit. I'm not saying finish yet. We've got a few minutes, I'm sure. Um, And so this woman comes in and stands at the feet of Jesus. So he's lying down at this table, and she stands at his feet. And she's bought this alabaster jar full of perfume, an expense, probably her one expense in life. And she's bought it there intentionally to break it and anoint Jesus' feet. This is not going to go well with the kids in the room. Because, oh, kids, Oh, no, sorry. And, um, and she's bought this perfume to break Jesus' feet. And maybe like Simon, she too had heard 
this rabbi teacher teaching about the kingdom of God. And rather than the message that she heard from the rabbis, the religious elite saying, you need to be spotless to inherit the kingdom of God. You need to be righteous. You need to obey every law. She suddenly heard this rabbi, this Jewish guy, who, who was performing miracles and even raising the dead and healing people and pronouncing the kingdom of God is among you. And he comes and he eats with sinners and tax collectors and, and people like her. And she says, God loves you. And he's for you. And he wants to call you his friends and he invites you to come and dine with him. And she's heard this message and she's seen, I'm sure people encounter Jesus and their lives be transformed and in her heart, she's believed, I want to follow him. I want to know him. And so she, she says that the next opportunity I get, when, when this rabbi is next in town, I'm going to go and anoint his feet. I'm going to press through. Even if it's a great social shame to myself of going into a Pharisee's house, which I would never step into. If Jesus is there, I'm going to go there. I'm going to cut through the crowd and get to him and anoint his feet. And thank him and honor him and worship him. And she does just that. The opportunity arises and she presses through the crowd. But as she stood at Jesus' feet, she begins to weep tears. Her heart was worship. And her, the depth of her worship was one of realizing her utter brokenness. You see, she realized her utter need of Jesus and his forgiveness and his redemption. And her, her worship, it wasn't just a ritual. It wasn't just simply, well, I go to synagogue and I make an offering. I go to the temple, I make an offering and I say the right things and I wear the right things and I do the right things and, and Jesus and God is happy with me. It's, I pour out everything I am before Jesus Christ. I lay my life down. It's all before him. Everything I have is for him. And she stands and she begins to cry tears over his feet. And I'm sure they were tears for the years of pain and hurt and shame and guilt and suffering and distance and inability to ever imagine she could get back into God's covenant people. And she begins to cry tears. And then she does the, the intimate act that happened uh, between her husband and wife. And back in the day, uh, Jewish women would cover their hair as a sign of, of humility, as a sign of honoring husbands. And culturally, it's what happened. And you wouldn't let your hair down in public. You would only let your hair down in your home before your husband. And in front of this crowd of Pharisees, no less, she shames herself even further by taking her hair down. And she begins to wipe Jesus' feet. And then she begins to pour this oil, this fragrance over Jesus' feet. She kisses his feet and doesn't cease to kiss them. We'll finish with this. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if, there, if this man were a prophet, he would have known what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Oh, that is not a good idea. <laughs> a 
And Jesus answered him, saying, something I have, Simon, I have something to tell you. And you guys can go home and read the parable. But Charles Spurgeon is going to close this for us with this quote. Jesus is not blind to this woman's sin. He's not actually okay with her sin. Sin has to be dealt with. Sin has to be paid for. Forgiveness is not free. It costs Jesus his life. And Charles Spurgeon writes this so well. He says, Our Lord allowed her to wash his feet with her tears. But Jesus knew well what those tears had looked upon when he allowed those lips to kiss her feet. He knew right well what language those lips had used in years gone by. And when he suffered her to show her to love him, he knew how foul her heart had for a time been. With every unhallowed desire, her evil imaginations and unchaste desires, her wanton words and shameless acts were all before the Savior's mind, far more vividly than they were before her own. For she had forgotten much, but he knew all. I'm going to finish there because time. But I want to invite you to stand for a moment. And I want to just ask that as we go from this place, I want to ask that God would remove in us this way of thinking about people. And for some this morning, judgment is like a stronghold in life and you make yourself feel better and I'm not here to beat you up but you make yourself feel better by tearing others down or stamping on the heads of others around you. And that may be spiritually, it may be socially, it may be emotionally but Jesus has come to set you free from that way of being. Jesus is the one who sits enthroned on high. He's the only one who's at the top. Everyone else is at the bottom. There is no in-between. And the point is this, that Jesus who knew no sin, he came down and took on sin and became sin for us. That we who are sinners in the filth and mire who have prostituted ourselves on the squalor of life, that we might receive his righteousness as our own. It's imputed because he paid the ransom. You see, it wasn't just Jesus. That's when you go home, make sure you realize that, that when the, everyone's going, who is this who forgives sins? They know their Bibles. They know their Torah. Sin has to be paid for. Sin just can't be forgiven like that. Not even God can just forgive sin. It must be atoned for. They know that. And they're saying, who is this who can forgive sin? And Jesus says to her, your sin, woman, your sin is forgiven. And that, that scandalous exchange of grace takes place. That the righteousness of Christ is imputed to her and becomes her righteousness. Not because she's done anything, but because her faith has saved her and rescued her. You see, friends, that is the point. It is grace that sets you free by believing in Jesus Christ and who he is. And what happens is you then don't need to climb the ladder. That's not your game anymore. You've been set free from that way of living. That's a stronghold in culture. 
In fact, that's the only way to live in culture if you want to make sense of this world is to try and climb the ladder in every way, financially, socially, emotionally, everything. But Jesus says, it's now no longer a ladder climbing game for you. You've been seated with Christ in heavenly places, new citizenship. Therefore, there is now no condemnation. And so I say this to you, whatever your past, whatever you have done, If you are with Jesus and in him and he is in you, that has been removed as far as the east is from the west. And Jesus has taken you to the penthouse suite. He's he's returned you to the highest form of living with God. And you're seated with Christ. And so I pray, can I just invite you to hold your hands? Father, I pray for us this morning that, Lord, we would not be in the trap of judgment, of self-righteousness, of trying some form of Christian self-atonement. Father, I pray that we would be the receivers of your amazing grace in our life that sets us free from sin and ungodliness and shame and guilt once and for All it is done. That's why Jesus said, it is finished. The debt is paid. It is paid. And so whether you're you're religious in your heart and you've got that religious tendency, like the Pharisee here, no, you're set free from that way of thinking. Whether you're saying, my life life is such a squander in the the past and it kind of shadows my, my future and even today. No, you're set free from that. That's Jesus' words over you this morning are go in peace. And I want to speak the peace of God, the shalom of God, the fullness of life and the joy of life that is yours by birthright now in Christ Jesus. I I proclaim that and pronounce that over us as a church family, that we would be those who revel in the amazing, scandalous grace of Jesus Christ, that he would let the prostitute go free, that he would let you and I Go free and give us life eternal, a future hope that we will become children of God, a dwelling place of God himself, a living temple no less. And God, would you breathe on us today that, Lord, as we go from this place, we go, those, we go as those not who judge the world from some false high and lofty position in our own minds, but we go as those who, like you, Jesus, you step down low. Lord, we go as servants. We go and wash the feet of the world. We go and cry the tears of, of pain as we weep with the world in her pain. And we, we, we go and serve broken lives. And we say, there is hope and there is one who loves and there is one who restores and gives life and is able to set you free and give you life eternal. And his name is Jesus. And so we bless one another with that this morning. And we pray, therefore, Holy Spirit, empower us to live a life like that this week, we pray for your glory. Amen.